0: But anyway, Galatians chapter number 3 and verses number 15 through 20. Some of you will get that later on on the way home. But uh, Galatians chapter number 3. And I told the preacher today as we were talking, I told him, I said, rem- and I don't, I don't believe in reincarnation, so don't go home and tell anybody that I believe in reincarnation. But, but I told myself and I told the preacher today, I said, remind me in my next lifetime not to try to tackle a book like Galatians and I've gotten into the chapters three, and now we're going to be moving into chapter four probably the next time I preach. But man, I thought, what have I gotten myself into? But. The stubborn side of me just says, I'm going to keep on going. We're going to try to get through this. But I have enjoyed some of it. Some of it I've really had to rack my brain over. But uh, we're going to be in Galatians chapter number 3 tonight. Hopefully we can try to shed some light on some of these scriptures as we kind of just go through it verse by verse. And uh, if you'll recall, uh, who wrote the book of Galatians? Who wrote the book of Galatians? The Apostle? Paul, okay, and he was writing to the churches of Galatia. He was writing to more than one church. He was writing to the churches at uh, uh, you know, uh, Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Galatia. And so he wasn't writing to just one church like maybe the church at Philippi or the church at Colossae. He's writing to a group of churches and so he begins chapters 1 and 2 and he begins to tell a little bit about the history of himself and himself getting saved and how it related to these Judaizers that were coming in to the Galatian churches there and kind of corrupting the doctrine and what they were really trying to do is they were trying to add works to salvation. And like we've said every time that we've presented the book of Galatians, we talked about how salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what salvation is. And so chapters 1 and 2 were more of a history. He's talking about the different events that happened and how it was that he came about and everything. And so, but then we move to chapters 3 and 4, and chapters 3 and 4 really become a big pivot in the letter. It becomes a strong doctrinal writing from the Apostle Paul, and they, they, they call this type of writing a polemic writing, which is a speech or piece of writing expressing a strong, critical attack. And so what he's doing is he's attacking this idea that there is salvation outside of justification by faith. And so we have to realize, and Paul was trying to teach it to these Galatians, hey, you don't need anything else besides the Lord Jesus Christ, for salvation, And many believers in the Galatian churches, they were leaving the purity of the gospel by thinking that they could improve on the finished work of Christ. And so we said a couple weeks ago that when the mariner or the shipman loses sight of his guiding star, the ship may drift into strange waters. And I want to say for the Christian tonight, the cross is the central thing in our life, or it should be. We should keep the cross before us and never lose sight of it, never minimize it. And we can drift into strange waters if we get our eyes off of, the, off of the cross and off of Christ. So in these two chapters, chapters number 3 and 4, there's 60 different verses. And this is really some of Paul's strongest writing. He was really in a battle against these Judaizers. And the Judaizers were trying to capture the churches of Galatian. And so much like maybe a a mama bear would defend her cubs, the Apostle Paul was defending these churches and just going to bat for them. He wasn't writing this letter half-heartedly. I mean, he was going with full force at these folks and trying to denounce this false theology that they were trying to bring about. So Paul, if you'll recall, he began to use some different arguments to prove that God saved sinners through faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. If you'll recall a few weeks ago, we said how he uses the personal argument. What he began to do in chapter 3, he simply began to ask those Galatians, how was it that you got saved? The way that you got saved is the same way that you're to, to continue in your Christian life. What he was saying, hey, you got saved by faith You don't have to add works to your life to be saved or to even stay saved. And that's an important thing to remember. You know, we don't have to do certain things to be saved. We don't have to do certain things to stay saved. And so Paul points out inconsistency between their commencement, meaning their beginning, versus their continuance. He said, you started right. But you're not continuing, right? You're trying to add works. You're trying to complicate this thing of faith. And so we looked at because the Holy Spirit has done so much for us as Christians, we have a responsibility back to the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to walk in the Spirit. We're supposed to be filled with the Spirit. So we have the Holy Spirit not just for salvation, but we also have him to indwell us and energize the believer. Now, as I look out here on a Wednesday night, I don't, I don't, There's not, it doesn't seem like a whole lot of energy going on. But, you know, the Holy Spirit is there to energize us and to help us in our Christian life, and it's all through the Holy Spirit. So we looked at the personal argument. Then we looked at the patriarchal argument where basically Apostle Paul, he begins to speak about Abraham, and he goes back to the Old Testament and says, hey, Abraham believed and he received. It was all through faith. He believed. And he received. And then he says, that's the same way that we are saved, is we believe and then we receive. I know that's rather elementary tonight, but it's good to be reminded about about that. And so the Apostle Paul goes on, he begins to speak about that. And the Judaizers, they were still going in and saying, well, you got to do this, you got to do that. But if you were to go back and look at Abraham, when he believed and he received, that was 14 years before God Ever gave Abraham the sign of circumcision, so God says, "Hey, fourteen years before we ever gave the seal of circumcision, you got you believed and you received." And the Judaizers were now saying, "You got to be circumcised to be saved." Well, if you know the Bible, that doesn't that contradicts itself, and so we, in the same manner, are saved by believing and receiving. So we looked at the personal argument. We looked at the patriarchal argument and now tonight we want to look at what I'm calling the promise argument or you can call it the past argument. So Paul, he makes four basic statements that help us understand the relationship between the promise and the law. And so we're in Galatians chapter 3 and verses number 15 through 29. We won't read all of that right now, but I want to read it as we go to each point. Let's read verses number 15 through 18. The Bible says, brethren... I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannuleth or added thereto. So stop right there. What he's basically saying is he's talking about the contract or a contract. And he's saying, hey, when you have a contract between two people, it's an agreement between those two people, not a third party. The third party can't not they cannot mess up the contract. And so what Paul is beginning to say, he's beginning to say that the law cannot change the promise. So look at verse sixteen. He says, Now to Abraham and his seed, where the promise is made, he saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. In this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannule that it should make the promise. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So you'll see in these verses, we see the word promise about eight different times, and so let me just kind of break that down for you if I could, and I'm not claiming to be a a scholar tonight. I just kind of want to try to give you what I've learned out of studying from this, and you might say, well, Brother Mark, do you have a good grasp on this? I can't say that I have a super firm grasp, but I have got some clarity as far as studying it, but the promise, you'll have to go back to Genesis chapter number 12 when God began to tell Abraham, hey, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to bless your seed. I'm going to bless your offspring. And so God gave a promise to Abraham. We call it the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter number 12. And so that was God's promise to Abraham that in him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Look at Galatians 3, 8, 9. If you go back just a few verses, do we have that up there? Let's read it. Just go back just a little bit. Uh, Galatians 3, 8, 9. It says, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. So we see the word promise mentioned eight different times. Uh, Paul just is basically laying out the groundwork and saying that uh, a third party can't cancel the contract. So here's the picture. Abraham is spoken to by God. God promises Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your seed. That was done about 2000 BC. 500 years later, we have the giving of the law of Moses. You say, well, why, that, why is that so important? Well, the giving of the law, these Judaizers began to come in and say, well, you got to obey the law. You got to obey the law. And what Paul is trying to teach is saying the law doesn't change the promise. So that third party. When God spoke to the angels, the angels spoke to Moses. Moses brought the law down. uh, Paul is saying the law cannot change the promise. And so the Judaizers were, were trying to say against that. Paul argues, hey, it did not change the promise. And can I remind us tonight, just as a side note, when God makes a promise, he doesn't break it. He keeps his promises to his people. God is immutable, God, meaning God is not changing. He doesn't change. What's the Bible say? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so any promise that we see in the Bible, is, we, uh, if it applies to the Christians nowadays, hey, God's not going to go back on his word. He's not an Indian giver, if I can say it that way. He's not going to give a promise And then take a promise back. Hey, I'm glad we have a promise in the Bible like draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. He's not going to change that promise. I think of other promises in the Bible. Call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Hey, if we call upon him, he hears us. He wants to answer our prayer. And so he doesn't change. And so we see God made this promise not only to Abraham but also to Christ Christ we see in the Bible this concept of the seed, and that goes back to Genesis 3 and verse number 15. I think we've got that up there. Galatians, uh, Genesis 3 and verse number 15, yes. And it says, and I, so here is the verse where we, we draw part of this where it's speaking about the seed. And this is actually, I, it took me a while to understand this. I've heard preachers talk about it, but as I studied it, this is actually God speaking to the serpent there when after Adam and Eve fell. It says, and I will put enmity. So God's saying, hey, I'm going to put enmity between thee and the woman. So I'm going to put a, a divider in between the woman and the serpent. He says, in between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head. That's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thou shalt bruise his heel. God's saying, hey, one day I'm going to send a son. I'm going to send my son to die. And he's going to to take away the sting of death. He's going to take away the victory of death. And he's going to, he was speaking directly to the serpent. So God states, hey, there's going to be conflict in the world between Satan's seed and the woman's seed. And the woman's seed is God's children, but ultimately that's God's son. We see in the Bible there was enmity between Cain and Abel. There was enmity between Jesus and the Pharisees. There was enmity between Israel and the versus the other nations. There's enmity between the saint and the sinner. And so Satan's goal was to keep that seed from being born into the world. aren't you glad nothing could stop Christ from coming to the earth? Nothing was gonna stop him from coming to the earth to die on the cross to give us eternal life. And so the argument is clear. Hey, you, the law doesn't change the promise. The law given centuries later did not change the covenant between Abraham and God. So maybe maybe you, one person would say, well, the law was greater and more glorious than the earlier. Paul makes a second statement. He says the law is not greater than the promise. So he's saying the law is not greater than the promise. Look at verse number 19 and 20. It says, wherefore, then serveth the law. He said, what, what, what good is the law? He said, it was added because of transgressions Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. So the record of the giving of the law it was very impressive. As you think about Moses, you think about him being on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, and we we hear of the thunder, and we hear of the lightning, we hear of the people being in fear. In fact, the Bible even says that Moses was shaking in his sandals. We would say nowadays shaking in his boots, but he didn't have them, so he was shaking in his sandals. Look at Hebrews 12 and verse number 21. Hebrews 12 and verse number 21, it says, and so... Terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and shake. So, even as great as the event, the giving of the law was, the law was not greater than the promise. The law was temporary. Look what it says in verse number 19. It says, it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the law was just temporary. We don't, we don't exercise the, the ceremonial law nowadays. That was done, when, done away when Christ came. There are still some groups of people that they hold to the law. But aren't you glad when Christ came, we don't have to hold to the law? I'm glad, I don't know about you, but I'm glad I don't have to go into the temple and offer sacrifices. And I'm glad that now, because of Christ, we have direct access into the throne. We can go into the Holy of Holies because of Christ. We don't have to go through some mediator. So the law was temporary. The law required a mediator. You know, God spoke to the angels. The angels spoke to Moses. But Paul's saying, hey, the law is not greater than the promise. The covenant was greater than the law. So the law is not greater than the promise. Number three, the law is not contrary to the promise. And this is vital. You can almost hear the Judaizers shouting the question. Look down at verse number 21. You can almost hear them shouting this. Is the law then against the promises of God? You know, are they saying, well, is the law against the promises of God? He does not say that the law contradicts the promise, but rather that it cooperates with the promise in fulfilling the purposes of God. So one has to ask, what is the purpose of God tonight? As we think about in the year 2023, what is the purpose of God? Well, Brother Barry Wall kind of hit on it a little bit. It's to worship God. But then what is, what is his main purpose, I would say? Luke 19 and verse number 10. I think I read this on Sunday. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. If you want to know God's purpose in one verse right there, it's right there. God has come in the form of Jesus Christ incarnate. He was 100% God, 100% man. He came that he might save the lost. So as we think about the law and the promise, law and grace don't oppose each other. They actually... Complement one another. You say, well, then why was the law given? Look at verse 21. It says, um, is it contrary? It says, God forbid, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteous, righteousness should have been by the law. Paul's saying, hey, the, the law was not given to provide life. The law, look at verse 22, was given to reveal sin. But the scripture hath concluded all Under sin. That's you. That's me. That's everybody we work with. That's everybody that we live around. That's everybody that we shop with. We're all sinners. And it says, So the law was given to reveal sin. Law and grace cooperate in bringing the lost sinner to Jesus Christ. Hey, when we get up and we preach, or maybe when you get up and you teach a Sunday school, or when you run a bus route, what's the first step that we teach people about salvation? You are a sinner. Because if they don't realize that they are a sinner, they don't, they're not going to realize that they're in need of a Savior. And so they have to realize that I am a sinner. I heard the story years ago about somebody was preaching and, and somebody came forward and the, the, the altar worker asked the person, said, what did you come for tonight? And they said, I want to be saved. And, and uh, the, the preacher or the altar worker said, boy, you know, aren't you glad that God just saves wretched sinners? And the person looked back up and said, oh, I'm not that kind of sinner. And the person said, well, you probably, probably want to go back to your seat. They didn't understand sin. You know, there's not degrees of sin in God's eyes. Sin is sin in God's eyes. And so the law was given to reveal sin. Hey, that's what the law does. Law shows the sinner his guilt, but aren't you glad grace shows him the forgiveness he can have? Hey, when they come to our services or they ride our buses to church, aren't you glad that they can not only hear that they're a sinner? but they can learn about the grace of God and realize, hey, they can be forgiven of their sin. Hey, law and grace go hand in hand. They're not enemies. The law says, hey, you've got to be holy. You've got to be just. You've got to be good. What are we? We're unholy. We're unjust. We're bad. The law does not make us sinners. It just reveals that we are sinners. Let me illustrate it this way, Brother Brian, if you'll grab that uh, device there. A mirror helps us to see our dirty faces. A mirror helps to see our dirty faces. Look at James 1 in verse number 22 and verse 25. It says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth, what manner of man he was. And then verse 25, "...but whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed." I know this is a little bit silly, but you know what, I I don't know about you, but I've never come over to the mirror before, and maybe I get there at uh, 6.30 in the morning, I look in the mirror, and you see the, the crud in your eyes, and you see your hair all messed up, and boy, you think, man, this face is dirty, this face needs help. I don't know how many of you have ever done this, but I've never looked at a mirror, well for one thing, I usually go, whoa, but I've never looked at a mirror and used the mirror to clean my face. I've never done that one time. Anybody in here ever done that before? Probably not a one of us. But you know what? That's what the law is. We can't get clean through the law. The law is just a mirror and shows us that we are sinners. Does that make sense? I've never cleaned my face with a mirror. But you know what? The law is just a mirror. You know, we can't get clean by the mirror. And so the thing that shows us that we are dirty isn't the thing that cleans us. Hey, praise the Lord tonight. It's grace that provides the cleansing Through the blood of Jesus. It's grace. It's not the law. It's grace that makes us clean. It's the blood of Christ that makes us clean. Look at 1 John 1 and 7. It says, And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Aren't you glad tonight that God cleanses us from all sin through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross? God doesn't have two ways of salvation. He doesn't have keeping the law and faith. There's only but one way, faith in Jesus Christ. Let me illustrate it this way. Someone might say, well, I'm a pretty good person. Maybe you've been out door knocking before. You've heard somebody say that. They say, well, I'm a pretty good person. Anybody in here ever hear that before? You know, you ask them, well, if you were to die, normally what I'll say to people if I'm witnessing to, I might ask them, I'll say, you know, if I maybe invited them to church or whatnot, I'll say say, more importantly than going to church and more important than being a good person and all that, I'll say, you know, if you were to die today, are you 100% sure that you'd go to heaven? And a lot of times what they'll say, well, I'm a good person. And so we hear that. I came across this illustration. I think it makes, it makes a lot of sense. One day there were two cousins and they were talking. The male cousin said, you know, they were talking about theology and the male cousin looked at his female cousin. He said, I don't like the idea that there is no difference for all have sinned, and he talked about how he had lived a decent and a respectable life, and then he began to ask his cousin. He said, "God does not see any difference between me and people living a sin, uh, living a life of sin and iniquity." What he was trying to do was, he was trying to say, "Well, I'm up here. I'm, I'm up here with good works, and maybe everyone else, they're more wretched and they've done more vile sins. They're down here." He said, hey, "You know, how does God not see any difference?" And the other cousin poses a hypothetical uh, situation. They say, well, what if we were walking down the street one day? you got the female cousin, the male cousin. They're walking down the street, and they happen to look over, and they see a place of interest. They see maybe a, a museum. And they get interested, and they want to go into that museum. And so they go up to the window, and they ask the window attendant there, and they said, hey, how much does it cost to go into this museum? And, And the attendant says, well, it costs $15 to come in here. And so they both kind of scrounge around in their pockets, and they both realize they don't have their wallet on them, but they have just a little bit of money in their pocket. And so the one cousin pulls out his money, and he's got $4. The other cousin pulls out the money out of his pocket, and he pulls out $11. And so the one cousin asks his cousin, he said, so let me ask you, which one would go in first? And the male cousin, he says, well, under such circumstances, neither of us would get in. And the cousin begins to say, you see, there would be no difference, and yet uh, you would have a great deal more money than I. But as far as having what is, was necessary to pay our way in, there is no difference. That's the same way it is with us. You might have $11 worth. You might have $12 worth of good works. You might be comparing yourself to somebody that has only 3 or $4 worth, but you know what? You still don't have the $15. Everybody in this world, doesn't matter how good they are, doesn't matter how faithful they are to church, doesn't matter how many times they've been baptized, doesn't matter how much money they give to the poor, they still only have 11 or 12, 13 dollars in God's eyes. That's not going to cut it. You're not going to be allowed into heaven. You say, "Well, that's pretty narrow-minded. That's just what the Bible teaches. God demands absolute righteousness of sinners before they enter heaven. Three, 13 or $14 won't cut it. Look at Revelation 21 and verse number 27 says, and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. You know what John's saying there? He says, hey, the only thing that's gonna matter is if your name is written in the book of life. How do you get your name written in the book of life? Hey, but through faith, through faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, through grace. You don't do it through the law. And so we see that the law is not contrary to the promise. It just points us to Christ then look down at verse number 23 it says but before faith came we were kept under the law shut up under under the faith which should afterwards be revealed verse number 24 it says wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith now a lot of times we read that and we see that word schoolmaster I don't know how you are but when I see that word schoolmaster I used to always think about just a schoolteacher. but you know what the word schoolmaster actually means pedagogue, which means back in Bible times, the Galatian readers, they would have been very familiar with that term. What that term was is back in Bible times, the Roman and the Greek households, they would have these well-educated slaves. And these well-educated slaves were kind of like the caregivers for these children and so it'd be like maybe me if I was a homeowner and brother Brian excuse the illustration but if brother Brian was a well-educated slave he would he might care for my children so what he might do is he might do different things like he might take the children to school and from school and he would watch over them during the day he would teach the children maybe sometimes protect and prohibit the children from doing certain things sometimes they would even discipline them and I got to think, what a beautiful picture of Paul's painting here. You know, that slave was not the child's father. It did not give that child life. And the Bible says that the, the, uh, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It did not give that child any life. You know, the law does not give us any life. It was the, he was the child's guardian, disciplinarian. Hey, can I say tonight, the law does not give anybody life. All it does is regulate life. It helps to steer our life. It keeps us out of the ditches, if you will. You know, you have the verses like, honor thy father and thy mother. That's not going to save us, but it sure is good to for kids and teenagers to honor your father and mother. It's good for us adults to honor our father and mother. The Bible talks about not stealing and thou shalt not bear fault witness. Thou shalt not covet. So the law does not change the promise. The law is not greater than the promise. The law Is not contrary to the promise. And then in closing, number four, the law cannot do what the promise can do. Look at verse number 27. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You know, there was a certain amount of glory to the law. There were people that all were all wrapped up to, wrapped up into it. But you know, there's a greater glory in the gracious salvation of God tonight. Boy, you talk about something glorious. The fact that God would reach down for us, die for us on the cross of Calvary to give us eternal life. Well, you talk about something glorious. The law could reveal sin, and to a certain extent, it, it can control behavior, but the law can't do for the sinner what Christ can do. The Bible talks about, in verse 27, those of you that are baptized into Christ. That's the baptism by the Spirit. You know, when we get saved, we are baptized by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into our life and gives us eternal life. The Bible talks about that, being baptized by The Spirit. But then there's also baptism by water. That's the outward picture of the inner work of the Holy Spirit. Why do people get baptized? Well, the Bible explanation, the Bible uh, um, uh, illustration of that is that the Bible teaches that it's a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We always say around here that the baptism is an outward expression of an inward decision. When you see people baptized in the Bible, it's after they receive the Holy Spirit. There are certain groups out there that they believe that baptism saves you. Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism doesn't wash away your sins. And so we've got to realize it's salvation, baptism. Salvation, and then baptism. Two totally separate things. The law could never make us heirs of God. Look at verse number 29. And if ye be Christ's, Then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Aren't you glad that because of Christ, we are technically, spiritually speaking, we are heirs of Abraham's seed. We are in that family now, all because of Christ and all because of faith. You know, Galatians is important as we read the Old Testament. As we read the Old Old Testament, it's all about the preparation for Christ. It's all about laying the groundwork for Christ to come. Then you get to the Gospels, it's the presentation of Christ. Then you get to Acts and Revelation, it's all about the appropriation of Christ, applying Christ to our hearts and to our life. Hey, can I encourage you as we close here in just a minute, may we never ever uh, lose our wonder and meaning as we realize that all that we have in Christ. May we realize what Christ did for us it's all by grace. It's not by law. It's not by me looking into the law and trying to wash myself. It's all because of his grace washes away our sin. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Philip P. Bliss, the greatest gospel song, reader, song well, one of the great gospel songwriters of the 1800s, he caught the meaning of our freedom. Here's what he said. He wrote the song, Once for All. He said, free from the law, O happy condition, Jesus hath bled, and there is remission. Aren't you glad tonight there is remission of sins? Cursed by the law and bruised by the fall, Christ hath redeemed us once for all. Once for all, O sinner, receive it. Once for all, O brother, believe it. Cling to the cross, the burden will fall. Christ hath redeemed us once for all. I think of another good song. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Hey, maybe tonight you walked in and you're a little bit discouraged and maybe you have this going on in your life. You got that financial reversal. You got this health issue you're dealing with. Hey, can I remind you? Hey, we're still saved. We still have eternal life. I think of that psalm. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured. There where the blood of the Lamb was shed. Hey, aren't you glad that blood was shed for us? I'm so glad about that. Well, let's pray and uh, we'll give a quick altar call if you want to come and pray. Maybe the Lord spoke to you tonight. But I'm glad, hey. The loss, there. Yes, it's there, but it points us to Christ, tells us that we're in need of a Savior. Let's remember, hey, this world is in need of a Savior. Let's remember that, hey, there's a lost and dying world out there. Let's try to witness to others. Let's remember all that Christ did for us. If you need to come and pray, you come and pray, and uh, we'll close the service here in just a minute.